and we welcome you into the St. Mary Healthline once again here on 1490 WBCB, heard around the world at WBCB1490.com. Terrific to be with you once again on a Wednesday morning. Chris Ermer, along with my special guest, Dr. Michael Bickle from Comprehensive Urologic Specialists, as uh, we drop a line, a health line, uh, uh, some information as we uh, join you each and every Wednesday. And today we're going to be talking, doctor, about andrology, about male infertility, and a number of other topics. Last time I was with one of your colleagues, we were talking about the prostate. But uh, before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about your experience and about what brings you here to St. Mary Medical Center? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> and thank you for having me on here today. I, uh, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I did my residency in urologic surgery in the Philadelphia uh, city at uh, Einstein and Hahnemann. And then I did a fellowship specific for andrology in uh, University of South Florida in Tampa. And now I'm coming back to, in part, to, to practice back where I grew up and, and be with my, my family and here my roots. And uh, it's been wonderful being part of the, the St. Mary's community. Well, it's great to have you with us this morning for the St. Mary Healthline. And great to have you as part of the, the expertise here at St. Mary Medical Center. So you mentioned andrology. What is andrology? So andrology is a, it's kind of a catch-all term that applies to uh, the branch of medicine that deals with uh, male-specific related disorders and conditions. So uh, loosely, it, it encompasses um, male, uh, male factor infertility, uh, male sexual dysfunction, which includes not only erectile dysfunction, but also conditions like Peyronie's disease, which is an abnormal, abnormal curvature of the penis, uh, as well as male incontinence, which uh, is oftentimes seen following uh, prostate cancer treatment, both radiation as well as uh, surgery. So uh, is those hormonal treatments? I mean, what types of, maybe we'll get into that as we continue on here with the health line this morning, but I guess, is it like male hormone treatment in that, some cases? That, that's absolutely applicable and falls under the, the umbrella of andrology, uh, treating male hypogonadism which is uh, a fancy way of saying low testosterone, is, uh, is encompassed with andrology as well and, and does have an interplay on some of the other conditions that we touched on, and hopefully we'll get into more detail about that. But absolutely, in, in certain conditions, uh, treating men with, um, with hormones and, and uh, ways of, of helping to raise their, their testosterone and uh, decrease estrogen levels, if that's the case, um, as part of uh, treating their, their underlying uh, condition, which quite commonly um, with hypogonadism includes uh, lethargy, um, erectile dysfunction, and uh, uh, weight gain, things like that. We're with Dr. Michael Bickle this morning for the St. Mary Healthline. And Dr. Bickle, sometimes I see ads on the television which suggest I should be very concerned about lowering testosterone. Is it something that, that most men uh, are, have or at a, of a certain age experience? You know, I think it's a it's an interesting topic, um, <clears throat> especially in today's society, because there there is a push, a recent push that we've been better identifying low testosterone and and really what the implication of that is for our overall overall health and well being remains somewhat unanswered. I think that um, 
we've seen certainly a, a vast uh, exponential growth in the number of patients that are diagnosed with, with hypogonadism and, and concurrently the prescriptions for treatment aids as testosterone and other uh, modalities in order to raise the tes their patient's testosterone has, has increased. Um, so it's quite common now. It's sort of a, a hot-button uh, topic and, and, and remains actually quite controversial as it pertains to not only uh, prostate health, uh, specifically the potential to potentially exaggerate or worsen uh, the, the incidence or the, um, hmm. uh, the, the prostate cancer in and of itself, but also as it pertains to cardiovascular health. Uh, there is a, a black box warning on, on testosterone which is new as of a couple of years ago, and, and it specifically relates to those two issues, mm. the cardiovascular potential as well as, uh, as, as potentially increasing the aggressiveness and the incidence of prostate cancer. And, and it truly remains uh, controversial. And I think it, it, it does um, underscore the importance of, of being treated appropriately and in the appropriate setting by someone that uh, has experience in doing so and has an understanding about those controversies and is up to date with the, with the literature out there. Well, I, I didn't mean to steer us off course, uh, <laughs> but uh, what or who is the right healthcare practitioner for men to talk with if they are concerned about those types of issues or about any andrology, I guess, andrology as a whole? Yeah, I think that uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few uh, different avenues to choose from. I think the importance of, of seeing a primary care physician and and typically starting there and, and having these these issues uh, identified, and then uh, if the the primary care uh, physician would like to uh, treat a patient, treat a male for their hypogonadism, but has some reservations given the their age and their potential for for prostate cancer or their comorbid conditions, and and is is concerned about the interplay of their cardiovascular status with uh, with supplemental testosterone, um, then they would I, I would recommend that they would seek the counsel of, of a urologist that has the specialty uh, training uh, with and with andrology, um, and and certainly you there could be there's a certain ro a role for an endocrinologist in this facet as well. So there, there's a lot of there's different overlaps between uh, between the, the disciplines. Um, as a urologist, I think that we're the, the best suited in order to help um, better, I guess, understand the, the relationship between prostate cancer as it relates to, to uh, testosterone replacement therapy and have a, a good follow for that as we're, we deal every single day with patients that have uh, elevated PSA, which is a, a blood test uh, screening tool used to identify prostate cancer. And there's definitely a lot of confusion out there that um, if you're not familiar with that, you would oftentimes wonder, well, what do I do with a patient that has an elevated PSA after I put them on testosterone? Is that something that's to be expected? Is that a concerning uh, factor? And, and that's best handled by, uh, in my opinion, by a urologist that has the, the understanding of exactly what, what the interplay is and, and when, when is the time, when is there a time to be concerned about that and when is that to be just in part expected? So we're talking about changing hormones, about uh, guys, their, their experience in life changing. Are, are we talking about male menopause? Is that <laughs> it? Yeah, you know, I think male menopause, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting term. It's definitely a catchy term, and, and um, there's a lot to be said for that. There, 
in the medical community, we would probably refer to it as, as adult onset hypogonadism. Um, but for a lay person, male menopause certainly works. And, and really what this is, is we're seeing as patients get older that they have uh, a higher incidence of, of decreased testosterone. And, and we know that starting at about the age of 30, it's typical for a male to have about a 1% decrease in their testosterone each year as they get older. Um, having said that, when you get to a certain age, and, and typically what we're seeing is around the age of 60 being, being sort of a, the most common age of, of presentation for adult onset hypogonadism, you have the combination of a low circulating level of testosterone and an inadequate response by the pituitary gland which is the signal to make more testosterone. So in fact, the testicles are, are the, the organs that make testosterone, but they're told to do so by stimulation from the pituitary gland. In a normally uh, healthy functioning male, as our testosterone levels uh, decrease because the testicles to a certain degree, will, they're not going to put out the same robust level of testosterone in a 20-year-old as they are in a 70-year-old. In a the hope is that the pituitary gland then gives an additional signal to tell the testicles we need to increase the level of testosterone that we're putting out and that the testicles respond appropriately. In adult onset hypogonadism, more commonly known as, as male menopause, there seems to be some sort of um, disruption or lack of, of communication between the pituitary gland sending that signal to the testicles. And it could be in part that the testicles um, aren't are not being stimulated as well as they were at one point in time, but, but more commonly, it's that there's a low level of testosterone and what we would expect to be a higher level of the pituitary hormones, which are, are FSH and LH, that signal the testicles to make testosterone. We would expect those to be elevated if the testosterone is low, but in male, uh, I'm sorry, in adult onset hypogonadism, we don't see that response by the pituitary gland. I know that's a little roundabout. I hope that that makes sense to you. It does. Okay. Well, and we're talking about older individuals who are, have this low testosterone issue. Let's talk a little bit about younger guys who I would think sometimes uh, talk about issues with infertility. Um, I mean, how do you know if you're infertile? You, 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 you're, you're trying and, and nothing is, is, is working for you. Do you need to get tested? Um, is that all part of the process? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's uh, that's a good way of thinking about it. And I, I know we're transitioning into into low testosterone into male fertility, and uh, I'll just get it out uh, here in the open. Is there is a, a common misconception that if a patient uh, is deemed to have uh, in, to be infertile or to have um, uh, some degree of of um, poor, uh, I guess, a suboptimal fertility. Um, that they would want to be treated with testosterone. In fact, that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. It's contraindicated to give a patient that is either infertile or what we term subfertile testosterone as testosterone replacement therapy will ultimately result in shutting down the production of sperm. It inhibits spermatogenesis entirely. And in fact, at one point in time, it was thought to be a route for male, uh, a male contraception but that didn't exactly pan out. Um, but, you know, the, the, it's just something that we, we, I wanted to get out there just to start that if, if you're a male that is uh, suffering from either infertility or sub-fertility, sub um, being on testosterone is, uh, is certainly not the right avenue to choose. 
Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that because you think low testosterone means infertility, but they, it, it's not necessarily a, yeah, a, and, and, a, a correlation. And that's a, that's definitely that's a misconception that's not only very prominent amongst the just the, the general public, but even in, in, in medical professionals, even in uh, urologists that, that sometimes uh, have the misconception that uh, treating a patient with, uh, with, with infertility, with testosterone, is the, the right avenue to go when, in fact, that's absolutely contraindicated. So uh, for, for, to answer the, the question that you had posed originally, um, the way that we define infertility is trying uh, unprotected timed intercourse for at least 12 months. Uh, some definitions will stretch that out to two years. Um, and being unsuccessful. So we know that the, the majority of couples that do not have any fertility issues, be it male or female, about 90% of those couples will be able to conceive a child within one year and then the remaining 10% within two years. Now, if there is a component of, of infertility, either from the, the female, uh, female or the male, uh, those numbers obviously will change. And we know that men account for approximately 50% of the causes of a couple's inability to conceive. So typically it's thought that about 25% is purely a male factor in fertility, and then about another 25% is likely a male being subfertile and having a female that is, uh, I guess for a better term, uh, subfertile as well. And then, um, you know, so there is a, a likely a 50% contribution of uh, males in the, the incidence of uh, a couple's inability to conceive. So you run a certain amount of tests, and then, it w I mean, what can be done ultimately to, to help guys in that situation or to, to help the process? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the first thing that we do would be to check a semen analysis, and it's, it's actually the, the least invasive, easiest thing that we can do would be to check a semen analysis, and we usually like to repeat that. We like to have two values and then compare those and see. And there's a whole different um, whole different number of reasons for why a male might be infertile. It can come down to either a decreased number of sperm or even, in, in some cases, no sperm at all. And uh, and then also it could be that there are, are is uh, they're sperm present, but they're either malformed. Um, they don't have the motility that they ought to have in order to uh, allow for contraception uh, for uh, uh, a woman to conceive. And um, sometimes there's there what is called poor morphology, where the sperm themselves simply are just not anatomically structured appropriately, and because of that. Uh, there, the that person would be deemed uh, subfertile. It's something that we see more more commonly these days that a male will, will have either an adequate or, or sometimes a low number of sperm. Um, they have adequate motility, but it looks like the sperm that they have, morphologically speaking, are simply abnormal. And in that circumstance, it's somewhat tricky to treat. But depending on the etiology of the infertility, which really we, we gain all that information, at least as a starting point from the semen analysis, in order to better identify what the next step would be in the workup of the patient, because it does differ dramatically. If you have a, a low sperm count or even a, a no sperm, what we call azospermia, um, from a patient that has an adequate number of sperm but potentially has a 
poor mortality or poor morphology or even um, a, a low volume of sperm or a low volume of ejaculate. That workup is, is markedly different and, uh, and can get somewhat complex depending on exactly what the underlying etiology is. We're talking with Dr. Michael Bickle this morning from Comprehensive Urologic Specialists, and we have uh, uh, some more topics to get into, Doctor. We're going to step aside here briefly, but when we come back, I want to talk about male incontinence. Uh, again, I, I don't know, that may be a, a topic that uh, is more for the older gentlemen listening, but uh, perhaps you'll enlighten us and uh, let us know that there's more folks out there that uh, have this issue. And if you are looking to uh, find a doctor, at St. Mary, you can call the physician referral line at 215-710-5888, and uh, they'll get you in touch with Dr. Michael Bickle, and we appreciate his being with us. And you can also go online to stmaryhealthcare.org and get more information about Dr. Bickle and about the great physicians that we talk with each and every Wednesday morning here for the St. Mary Health Line. We'll be right back, and we will continue right after this. Welcome back to the St. Mary Healthline here on WBCB. Chris Ermer this morning with Dr. Michael Bickle. Great to be with you once again as we talk to another another of the physicians from Comprehensive Urologic Specialists. And Dr. Bickle, uh, when we left off, uh, mentioned male incontinence. Uh, is that an issue that is, is prevalent amongst men of a certain age, of a certain, that have gone through a certain situation? Yes, uh, in fact, it's most commonly seen in patients that are that have been treated for prostate cancer, whether they are post-prostatectomy or post-radiation therapy, um, and it does span the, the treatment modalities. So it can be, we see it as common as commonly in uh, open prostatectomies as we do laparoscopic prostatectomies. Although there's some thought that maybe laparoscopic prostatectomies do have a lower incidence of incontinence. Uh, and we see it both in patients that have been treated with external beam radiation therapy as well as proton therapy and, and uh, brachytherapy. So it, it is a, um, it's a, a fairly common condition. The most recent reports will indicate that there's about a 10% risk of male incontinence following prostate cancer treatment. And, and that's more specific for prostatectomy for the surgical treatment of prostate cancer. And, and that 10% incidence of male incontinence is usually uh, identified at about two years. So if you're, and it seems like a long time to be post-treatment and to be waiting to see if you're going to regain continence. But at the time of, uh, of 24 months, if you're still having incontinence, at that point you're deemed to have refractory male, male uh, incontinence. And that's about 10% of the patients that have been treated with prostatectomy. And how does male incontinence present in those situations? Is it like, uh, like, oops, a little, a little came out, or oh my gosh, uh, son of a, I, yeah. I peed my pants, and I, you know, or is it different with each patient? It really does uh, differ among each patient, and and even it's interesting just based upon the the reports of the incidence of incontinence seem to change what the definition of incontinence is. So, for instance. Some studies will identify incontinence as being a patient that requires no pads, while other reports will say, well, if a patient uses one pad, we're still going to say that they don't have incontinence. 
that this is simply they wear a pad for protection, but but they're really not incontinent. So I, I do think that it depends on, on how what your definition is. By a strict definition, by what you and I would think of, would be a, a male that does not require any use of pads, that doesn't lose their urine when they cough, sneeze, or laugh, when they have any sort of increase in intra-abdominal pressure. That would be a, a patient that does not have any incontinence. And the range of incontinence, it goes from patients that have what we call frank incontinence. Unfortunately, they're leaking urine uh, regardless of the activity that they do, they can leak urine at night while they're sleeping. They can leak urine at, at almost every single time during the day. Uh, to patients that, that have just a very minimal amount of dribbling, uh, that would typically be preceded by an increase of their intra-abdominal pressure, whether that be uh, cough, sneeze, or laugh, swinging a golf club, getting out of a car, things like that, physical so, activity. What can be done, I mean, besides uh, pads and that type of... of uh... Absolutely. So there, there's a you know, fairly standard algorithm for the treatment of male incontinence that typically goes from the least invasive to the most invasive. And what I always try to tell patients is that you know, we, we do have very good treatment options out there and that while I don't want you to lose hope and, and be, be uh, discouraged by the progress that you, you may or may not be making, but uh, there's a lot of different treatment modalities out there, and it's just a matter of getting you started on the right path with the end point being getting you, uh, getting you dry. So we typically talk about uh, the, the least uh, invasive, the most conservative being uh, pelvic floor therapy, which has been shown to be very, very helpful for men to similar to females with, with Kegel exercises to, to build up the pelvic floor muscles in, in order to aid in their, their ability to, uh, to store urine and not leak urine. And then there's also, of course, uh, surgical therapies and interventions that can be done. And the two that are most commonly done here in this country is one is called a, a, male, urethral, a, a male urinary sling, and the second is an artificial urinary sphincter. And they differ actually fairly dramatically between the two, uh, not only in, in the, the, the rates of continence following the surgery, but also in the invasiveness and how the involved they are for each patient. So for example, a patient that has a male urinary sling does not need to activate or deactivate any sort of device. The device is placed and they, it, it works uh, whether they're conscious of it or not. It simply provides additional structure to help the urethra uh, maintain their continence. Um, and does so uh, on its own without any participation from the patient. That's in contrast to an artificial urinary sphincter, which the patient actually has to activate and deactivate each time that they want to urinate. So there is a there's a a, a, a pump that is located in the scrotum, and it's it's completely concealed in the scrotum. There's nothing external, but it's something that they would press and that would allow for a cuff to be deactivated and allow for the urethra to be open in order for them to urinate. And after a, a certain uh, set time period, usually about a minute and a half, that cuff then closes back up and closes the urethra. But uh, the, the, the difference between both of those modalities really is that one the artificial urinary sphincter requires much more active participation by the patient. In fact, they, they need to, deact to, to, to activate the sphincter, another press, press the button in the scrotum in order for them to urinate. Um, and it, they will not urinate unless they do that. Um, and is typically used for patients that have a higher degree of incontinence 
the artificial urinary sphincter is, is used for patients that have what we would call mild stress urinary incontinence. They might need one to two, maybe three pads a day, and, and you would, uh, that would be an excellent treatment option for that, that type of patient. And, and that's certainly different than the patient that's leaking urine all the time or a patient that requires six pads or more per day, and, and they would get much more mileage out of an artificial urinary sphincter. And the, the, uh, the complication rate, the incidence of infection between the two, it, it does it, uh, significantly differ. And uh, I do think that the right treatment has to be offered to, to the patient and in conjunction with the patient that they understand if they have an artificial urinary sphincter, it's going to require them to, to actively participate in this. And, and um, the the urinary sling does not so it's a it's definitely very very patient centered and, and differs among the patient's degree of incontinence. Talking with uh, Dr. Michael Bickle this morning from Comprehensive Urologic Specialists on the St. Mary Healthline, and talking about guys' issues, talking about men, hormones. What causes erectile dysfunction? Is it something between the ears or is it something below the belt? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great, great way to put it, too. Um, you know, we used to think, and this is going back 50 years or more, that most of the causes of erectile dysfunction were really what we call supertentorial. They're, in, 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 they're psychological. It's a psychological etiology. And, in fact, we know now that that's, in fact, uh, for the most part, way off base. There's definitely a well-defined uh, pathophysiologic reason for men to have erectile dysfunction that's completely unrelated to the psychological component. That's not to say that patients don't suffer from erectile dysfunction uh, as uh, psych psychologically having the, the underlying etiology, but uh, the majority of men... So there's uh, a few different um, reasons for a male to have uh, erectile dysfunction as it relates to their underlying pathophysiology. The most common being arteriogenic, and that's poor blood flow to the penis. Secondary and less commonly, it would be called um, venous leak. And venous leak is most commonly seen in, in younger patients, patients that have erectile dysfunction at a very early onset, in, in their teens or early 20s. has nothing to do with the blood flow getting to the organ, but it has to do with once the blood gets to the penis, does it stay there? Of course, in order to have an erection, you have to have adequate blood flow to the penis, and then once the blood flow gets there, the blood has to stay there, otherwise you will lose the erection. And the, the last component to that is really the neurogenic component. So do we have nerves that function appropriately? And we would see that would be affected certainly in patients that have been treated for prostate cancer, whether it's radiation therapy or whether it's surgery, as well as patients that have uh, other conditions that affect uh, the, the, how nerves function, whether, it be, whether it's diabetes that's uncontrolled or even some neurologic conditions like strokes and, um, and MS and things like that. Um, but by far and away, the most common that we're seeing is, is arteriogenic. And of course, treatment for prostate cancer, again, radiation and, and surgery does affect the blood flow to, to the penis, uh, as well as other uh, medical conditions such as, as diabetes. I mean, how about things like even drinking coffee or having caffeine or, or different lifestyle choices? Uh, does that also affect ED or, or contribute to it in some cases? Uh, you know, I mean, there is a, a link between obesity and ED, and I think maybe you could make that argument in terms of, of uh, lifestyle, uh, you know, what, what things you choose to do in, in your diet and so forth and, and how active you are that could potentiate erectile dysfunction, but at, at the core of it, it really does get down to 
um, uh, really a blood flow issue. Is there adequate blood flow going to the penis? And, and certainly once it gets there, is it going to stay there? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's really an interesting thing now because we, we have identified that erectile dysfunction does predate cardiovascular disease. The Arteries to the penis are about one millimeter in their greatest diameter, and that's uh, that's uh, much smaller than the arteries that feed the heart. So the coronary arteries are somewhere around three millimeters, and so we know that uh, that that the conditions that are going to affect blood flow to any part of the body, atherosclerosis, um, is going to affect the the penis typically before it affects the heart, and we can actually use that as a screening tool to identify patients that are going to be at risk for cardiovascular events down the line, whether it's a heart attack or a stroke, simply based upon their erectile status. Again, it, it does predate cardiovascular disease, and it's it's something that can be seen as a harbinger of, of those types of illnesses. Now, of course, that's not always the case. There can be other reasons to have erectile dysfunction, but something that I think is important to keep in mind um, when we're counseling patients. Yeah, I mean, one way, the whole, it, you know, the leg bone's connected to the, the thigh bone <laughs> and such. I mean, it's all part of the, the same system. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, can you, are there medicines that can deliver blood to a certain part of the body? Are there other treatment options that can open those those small blood vessels? What, what treatments are out there? Yeah, you know, fortunately, there's a, a, a lot of different treatment options available for erectile dysfunction, as there are for male incontinence. Um, for erectile dysfunction, we, we always start with the, the again, uh, the least invasive to the most invasive. And the least invasive would be the PD-5 inhibitors. or medications that we're all familiar with, things like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra. Um, and uh, and we, we know that... Um, <clears throat> These medications work very well. In fact, the the studies show that they're about 75% uh, uh, efficacious in, mm. in, in patients. And, and a lot of this information comes from studies that have been done, uh, specifically the male Massachusetts aging study that was done and identified uh, the number of you know, millions of patients that are millions of Americans that are affected by ED. And you'll see these commercials all the time that mention that number. And, uh, and we know that these medications do work, again, about 75% of the time that they're going to work in, in an otherwise healthy patient. I, I think it's a little unfair to say if we had a patient that's been treated for prostate cancer that we can expect 75% of those patients to respond to these medications. They will not. But all comers, um, if you were to take a, a patient that's 45 years and older off the street, if they have erectile dysfunction, they'll respond to the medication about 75% of the time. All right. You know, Dr. Bickle, thank you so much for being with us for the Healthline. It's great to hear about all these treatment options and uh, all the different ways that uh, the St. Mary Medical Center can help. But, you know, really appreciate your time today. And any other any other things we didn't get to? I mean, we, we really yeah. touched the tip of the iceberg and that a, fasc a number of fascinating topics uh, that we, we talked about today. Anything that we missed? Yeah, you know, certainly I just want to, would want to mention as it pertains to erectile dysfunction that if the medications aren't effective, there's a whole other host of things that we can do, including uh, penile injections, which a lot of people kind of cringe about, as well as surgery, and, and that's kind of sometimes a foreign uh, the topic to think about a penile prosthetic device that does allow for an erection, but actually uh, is a, a surgery that we do very, very, very commonly, um, 
and it does not affect orgasm, it does not affect uh, ejaculation, and it, it really can be a very nice uh, adjunct if other treatment options have failed to treat uh, erectile dysfunction comes with a very high satisfaction rate and something that we do here at St. Mary's. Well, once again, thanks to Dr. Michael Bickle. You've been listening to the St. Mary Healthline here on WBCB. You can call the St. Mary Physician Referral Line at 215-710-5888. And for more information, visit stmaryhealthcare.org.